0: If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven, that's what we'll be looking at today, Matthew chapter seven. In the past, I have been known to give extended reviews of previous material, Uh, tried to steer away from that more recent years. But today I will sort of go back to that because I think it's important for us as we come to the last part of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew seven would remind you of two important realities that we've seen that should govern our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, this sermon is addressed to his followers, to his disciples. Um, Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, so the them are the disciples, his followers, meaning that the Sermon on the Mount isn't just for anyone. One cannot say, well, you know, I don't actually believe in God or I don't believe in Jesus, but I, I like what the sermon has to say. Um, his, the message and the content is for those who follow him. Second of all, the Sermon on the Mount is a package deal. People like to quote various parts of this sermon, like Blessed are the Merciful or Blessed are the Peacemakers, but they conveniently ignore the parts that they don't like, like Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, and blessed are those who mourn or those who blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake but then they like to jump to chapter 7 what we've been studying which it says do not judge or you too will be judged and I would just argued that's not the way it works This is a package deal. We are to take it as a whole. Jesus is talking about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, to be his disciple, to be a follower. He talks about character, about influence, righteousness, piety, and ambition. So, what we've seen is that this is for the followers of Jesus. Secondly, it's a package deal. But today I'd like to add a third matter, and that is that the Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the Old Testament. I think oftentimes people see the Sermon on the Mount as something quite innovative, something brand new. Um, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. We saw... um, in the passage on the two ways, the two gates, the two destinations, the two crowds, that the matter of the two ways is something we find in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's more. The third beatitude, "Blessed uh, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This actually echoes what we hear in Psalm 37, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. I mentioned this here at the beginning of the sermon, but it will come up later. Um, We we should, in fact, see that there is a strong connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and the Sermon on the Mount is not this breaking away from the Old Testament. Here's something brand new. Jesus is the Messiah. There hasn't been a Messiah before. He's the only one. But his kingdom is, has its roots in the Old Testament. Follow along, if you would, as I read our text today, it begins in verse number 21, Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I've suggested that the sermon proper ended at verse number 12. And then from verse 13 on, we have the conclusion and application and some might disagree, but I think certainly in our passage today, we see that this is the application. Jesus is not giving new information, if you wish. He's not giving instruction as much as calling people to say, you know, I've told you what is what, how you're supposed to live. Now, if you do this, you're like a wise man. and If you do not, you're like a foolish man. In the warnings that we've seen, beginning in verse number 13, we saw that uh, Jesus separates his followers from the majority, the broad way where many go on to the narrow way, and he separates his people from those within the community who are not genuine. These are the false prophets, okay? We saw this last week, and we might think, well, that really doesn't apply to me. I'm not a false prophet. I'm not a false teacher, um, Okay, but how do we know who is a false prophet or a false teacher? Jesus gives us, I've suggested, some tests by which we are to judge or discern. The first has to do with their character and their conduct. The second with their teaching. The third has to do with their influence. The result of what they teach in the lives of their followers. And here I want to review uh, what we saw last week uh, in this regard. Early in the sermon, Jesus has used two metaphors to describe the influence of his followers. If you follow the way of Jesus, if you listen and do what he says, he said, you will be light and you will be salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So these two common and indispensable provisions are the metaphor. We are light, and we are salt. Um, you will notice Jesus doesn't say, you ought to be salt, you ought to be light. Okay? He, and in a sense, he doesn't command us, be salt, be light. He simply states a fact. You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Because the world is, if you think about it, the world is represented as a place that lacks salt, that lacks light. As the followers of Jesus, we are to be what the world needs, what it lacks. That means that we exist not for ourselves, but for the world. We're here for others. Salt is not... For itself You know it's not Salt isn't Salt is for other things You put salt on food Okay Um, So in the same way As the followers of Jesus We are for the world And not for ourselves What does it mean to be salt? Well we saw this in the Beatitudes These are the characteristics The qualities that are mentioned In the Beatitudes Why do I bring this up? I would suggest to you that teachings that, in fact, focus on ourselves and what I can get out of it, by the way, that falls under the category of religion, okay? That's not being salt or light. That's not for the world. That's for yourself. And such teaching, I would argue, is not true. It is false. There's something wrong, okay? In the passage today, Having talked about false teachers, we saw that last week, Jesus doesn't separate us from them, if you wish, but from ourselves. That within ourselves that would incline us to hear what Jesus has to say, but in fact not to do what he tells us. One commentator has written, It is not only false prophets who make the narrow way difficult to find and harder yet to tread, a person may also be grievously self deceived. I don't need a false teacher to lead me down the wrong path. I think I do that pretty well on my own. Um, in the hymn we sang, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. Um, years ago, on two separate occasions, two different individuals spoke to me about the passage in Ephesians 6, and, and I guess I must have spoken about it at the time. Um, These were, I say, a decade apart, so these these individuals never met each other, but they said the same thing to me. Let me just read to you uh, Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God The picture is, there's opposition. In the hymn we sang, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Well, you you put on the whole armor of God. But both of these individuals said to me, You know, Damon, my concern is not the opposition. My concern is not the devil's schemes, the flaming arrows, and more. My concern is the person in the armor. Me. Me. Because if there was no opposition, there would still be the struggle within ourselves. This is what we hear in our passage today. In many ways, these two final paragraphs are similar. They, they speak to us, they contrast the right way and the wrong way to respond to Jesus' teaching. And if nothing else, they show us that neutrality is not possible. You can't say, well, I'm not going to do the wrong way, but I'm not going to do the right way either. I'll just, I'll just stay in the middle. It's simply not possible. So, first of all, verses 21 to 23, the two kinds of living as a follower of Jesus. This may be a familiar passage to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's been suggested here that the issue is profession, that people profess. People say, Lord, Lord. In other words, with their mouth, they are claiming that Jesus is their Lord. Um. And that what they profess is polite, Lord, Lord. It's orthodox, it's fervent, the repetition of Lord. And that it's public. Um, and certainly Jesus begins with not everyone who says to me. Okay? But I would argue that the contrast isn't what people say, it's what they do in their actions. Okay? Not everyone who says to me. What is the contrast? But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven will in fact be cast out. Those who profess to be followers of Jesus, calling him Lord, present their credentials at the final judgment. That's the picture that is given at the end of time. And they stand before him and they present their credentials. Um, Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles. By the way, the NIV has in your name only twice, but in Greek it's actually used three times. The ESV says that on that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. This this repetition, we didn't do it on our own, we did it in your name. On the face of it, these people seem to be saying the right thing. That is, they recognize that they're doing these things not in their own name. They recognize Jesus as Lord. They've done it in his name. But consider what it is that they point to as evidence of their genuineness. We are genuine disciples of Jesus. Jesus, we are your followers. Because we have prophesied, we've taught, we have driven out demons, and we have performed many miracles. If you'd want to put all of these actions into a particular category, it would be sensational, it's not ordinary, it's out of the ordinary. Uh, And marked by power, prophecy can be seen as spiritual speech with power. Exorcism and miracles are mighty works with power. And I, I, I think there's no reason to doubt that these people actually did what they claimed, that they believed that they did all of this in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus disowns them. Ironically, they own Jesus in your name, and yet he disowns them. They honor him, but he dishonors them. They work for him, yet he separates himself from them. As one writer put it, Lord, Lord is also heard on the broad way. The narrow path, we think, oh no, only there people say Lord. No, even on the broad path. How can this be? Seriously, how can this be if these people have done this in the name of Jesus? How can it be that Jesus says, listen, I want nothing to do with you? I think we learn from this passage that it is possible to work for Jesus, but not to work under him. That is, we do it for ourselves. These individuals are doing all these things in his name, and yet Jesus disowns them, and he refers to them as evildoers in NIV. The ESV, I think, is better here, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, 1 John 3, 4 tells us sin is lawlessness. Um, It is possible to serve and glorify Jesus, and yet in our living, not obey him. And if that's the case, then we are being lawless. I said that the sermon is a package deal. So what marks the character of a follower of Jesus? Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, making peace, and suffering persecution. And we hear none of this from these people who say, Lord, Lord, we're your followers. Have we not done all these things? They are too impressed with their works. They point to, and one might even say boast of, They're prophesying, they're exorcisms, they're performing miracles. The contrast Jesus points us to is the one who does the will of his father who is in heaven. It is, if you wish, the sensational, the spectacular versus the ordinary versus the simple versus obedience. Paul had to deal with this in the Corinthian church. They were all about the spectacular, read chapter four. It's like already you're kings and we as the apostles were at the end of the parade. You, know, you guys are in front. You're great. But perhaps the most familiar passage to you would be from chapter 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is the spectacular versus love. And therefore, Jesus disowns them. I said, by the way, that there are three parts, you know, that this is for the disciples that this is a package deal. This is rooted in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers, we find this in Psalm 6. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. I have no doubt that when Jesus spoke these words, away from me, people knew exactly where that came from, that it came from the book of Psalms. So those are the two kinds of doers, if you wish, those who do the will of the Father and those who do spectacular things. The second comparison is between the two kinds of houses in verses 24 to 27. The contrast here is between someone who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice and someone who hears the words of Jesus and does not put them into practice. It is not enough that we hear the words of Jesus, that we memorize them, that we think deeply about them, that we study them. We must, in fact, put them into practice. That is to say, we are to obey the words of Jesus. We hear this elsewhere. In Luke chapter 11, as Jesus was saying these things, he's preaching, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It isn't simply hearing, it's hearing and obeying. Then there is, in fact, the familiar passage in James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In the King James, don't be hearers only, but doers of the word. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. James, like Jesus, gives us a comparison, what we should not be like and what we should be like. Jesus refers to this as the wise man who built his house on the rock, and the foolish man who built it on the sand. Uh, James doesn't use the word wise and foolish, but I think it fits. He deals with the foolish first. Jesus deals with the wise man first. We should not be like someone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. And the analogy is of a person who looks in a mirror and after looking goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And James here is not talking about glancing, you know, before you leave the house, you sort of look in the mirror, see your hair is okay, all your buttons are... No, he's someone who, who looks at the mirror intently, um, and then they walk away and they forget what, in fact, they look like. Okay. The NIV uh, says, you know, that someone who, who looks and after looking, I mean, the, the idea is of looking intently. So, the comparison is not that you read the scripture, you glance at it, and then you forget what it says. If that were the case, I think we'd all be in serious trouble, because we've read much of scripture, if not all of scripture, and yet, I've forgotten much of what it says. The problem is this, he goes away. The wise person, on the other hand, okay, looks not into a mirror, but into the perfect law of freedom. And he does what it says. Okay. He has heard the word of God and he puts it into practice. It's interesting the phrase that James used, the perfect law that gives freedom. Which for many people is a problem because we think of law as curtailing freedom. I'm, I'm free to do anything I want, but there's a law that says you can't do that. And to say that law and freedom, that, that would almost seem to be an oxymoron. Law and freedom together. But God's law is perfect. The perfect law that gives freedom. In the law, God expresses who he is. In the teachings of Jesus, we learn who he is. Not only what he wants us to do, but who he is. And this law gives freedom. This is, I think, just a, a... Serious problem in our world today, because freedom I think today is understood to be I can do anything I want, I'm free to do anything, and that's not freedom. Okay, you may remember the story. Uh, by the way, uh, Anne and Elias Armenta just celebrated their 20th anniversary, um, and their son, their firstborn, Hosea, uh, Anne told me the story that on the day he turned four. He came into her, he's like, am I four years old today? She goes, yes, you're four years old. And he's like, yes, I can do anything I want. Um, that's how many people see freedom. You can do whatever you want. But that actually, that's not freedom. Um, the act of choosing to do something is not freedom. You might, in fact, say, Damon... Um, I'm going to put water in my gas tank. I'm not going to use gas anymore. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Um, No, that's not the way it works. I saw, uh, looking at the news today, that apparently some star on TikTok uh, was speeding recklessly and when the police stopped him, he says, listen, I'm rich, I'm famous, I can do whatever I want. And then they arrested him. Um, Freedom is not being able to do what you want. Choosing to do what is right, that is what freedom is. I mean, if you choose to do something dangerous, that's not freedom. Choosing to do what God has called us to do, that in fact is freedom. And it is in God's law that he tells us how to live. Don't kill, don't murder, don't covet, don't steal. This is who we are supposed to be. This is what God has created. James, in writing this to his uh, former members, they've all moved away. I don't think he's telling them something new. I think he's telling them something they have forgotten. They have forgotten in fact that they are to put into practice and that the law of God in fact enables them to be what they should be as human beings. So Jesus tells the story. Got a wise man, he builds a house on a rock and then storms come, floods come, rain comes and it stands. But a foolish man built his on the sand. And when everything came, the storms, the winds, the the floods, it was destroyed. And you know, that person is like someone who hears the truth. They hear the words of Jesus and they don't put it into practice. The wise man is someone who hears and puts them into practice. The last two verses of chapter seven I don't know, I haven't decided yet. We may look at next week, but the sermon is finished um, in verse number 27. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. But here at the end, I would have us to consider the comparison of the spectacular with the simple. Um, it's not quite the same, but I mentioned this light, but it's almost the contrast between light and salt. I think we prefer the light metaphor because we want to be seen. We're the light of the world. Look at us. Salt, uh, and, you know, unless it's in a dispenser, you don't know what's there. You taste the influence. You taste the results of salt. Yeah, and, yeah but nobody gets to see. I don't get any credit. Um, so what we hear here are, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many miracles, light, we were light for the world. Instead of we were poor in spirit, we mourned for the world, we were meek, we hungered and thirst for righteousness, we were merciful, we were pure in heart. We were peacemakers. We suffered persecution. And Jesus says, listen, you want to be spectacular? You want to be visible? Uh, At the end of time, he will say, I never knew you away from me. In the story of the two men who built their houses, I would have you consider two things. First of all, I would say, I mean, this is, Jesus is giving an analogy, but I would say, if you take it to its conclusion, you would not be able to tell a difference between the two houses, okay? Jesus isn't saying, you know, the guy who built on the rock, he built this great house, you know, great architecture and everything, and the guy who built on the sand,, yeah, no, poorly done. No, I think we could argue they're exactly the same, that when you look at them, you would not be able to tell, well, this one will stand and this one will fall. You won't, because the reality is in the foundation. It's not actually in the building itself. It's only when the storm came and the floods came and the winds came that then it's like, oh, okay. They looked identical, but this guy's house did not survive. And Jesus said, that's what it's like if somebody hears the words of Jesus, but does not put them into practice. Until the storms came, they looked solid. They looked good. But the storms revealed the weakness of the one who built on the sand. And then, the second thing, and I think this is important the storms, the floods, the winds came into both lives. It's not as though Jesus says, Listen, the guy who built on the rock, always great weather. It's the guy who built on the sand. He's the guy who suffered floods and storms, typhoons, hurricanes, all that. No, they both did. They both did. Um, and I think this is important that we should not assume, well, I've been obedient. I've heard the words of Jesus. I've put them into practice. Therefore, nothing bad should ever happen to me. As I said, that I would see the two houses as identical. I would see the lives of those who put it into practice, those who do not, also identical, that they may suffer tragedies, they may suffer loss, illness, whatever kind of suffering there is as a human being. Okay? But one stands and the other one falls. Obedience to the words of Jesus is not protection from troubles. Okay? It is our protection in troubles. So many people have walked away from the Christian faith because they're like, why is this happening to me? I thought because now I'm a Christian, these things won't happen to me. No, no, no. When Paul was in Asia Minor, in one particular town, um, he was encouraging the Christians and telling the people there, non Christians as well, that we must go through many trials in this life. Yeah, it's not just believers or unbelievers. We all do. The question is what will sustain us? A foundation of rock? Or are we built on the sand? Building on a rock does not protect you from storm. It's like, since you built on the rock, you will always, things will be fine. It will, in fact, sustain you. It will support you during the storms. So here at the end of this sermon, which is a package deal, which has its roots in the Old Testament, which is intended for those who say, I am a follower of Jesus, we are told it's not about the spectacular. It's about obedience. And it's not about hearing the word. It's about hearing and doing what it says, putting it into practice. And here Jesus calls us to be his people, to hear his word, and to put into practice what he has said. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are reminded in this passage how amazing it is how we somehow change your gospel into something that we're more comfortable with, something that lifts us up, that makes us the star. The first story of those who do amazing things, who not only prophesy but cast out demons, do many miracles seems to be all about them. But if we go back to the beginning of the sermon, it begins with being poor in spirit, recognizing our poverty and our need of Jesus Christ. And having recognized that need and put our faith in him, we are then to live, we are to put into practice the things that he has said. And here, I think, we are convicted of our lack of obedience. We know the words, we hear the words, we have reading from scripture every Sunday, but we fail to put them into practice by your grace, by your spirit. Change our lives May we be those who hear And put into practice The words of Jesus May we be obedient May we be salt Not shooting for the spectacular For the visible Where people can see But for what you alone know Obedience sometimes In very small ways In ways that no one else sees, but you do. May we, in fact, follow in the steps of Jesus, who was obedient, even to death on a cross. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, may we indeed follow him. As he was obedient, may we be obedient and put into practice what he taught us. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. I ask, I trust that you have been exalted, that you have been honored and glorified. And as we leave this place, may your spirit and grace go with us. May we recognize our calling to be salt and light, to be those who are followers of Jesus, who put into practice what he taught us. We thank you for your love, seen supremely in sending the Lord Jesus. Go with us as we leave this place today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.